Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. Alyssa Walker is on the show this week. Alyssa is currently the urbanism editor at Curved, where she writes about cities, infrastructure, transportation, and policy. Before that, she was the urbanism editor at Gizmodo and has written extensively about design and cities and architecture for places like Design Observer, Dwell, Fast Company, the Los Angeles Times, and the New York Times. I've been a fan of Alyssa's for a really long time and have just really enjoyed following her career. And I was especially interested in talking to her about what I saw as this sort of scaling up of her subject matter from writing about things like typefaces and objects to buildings and now to cities. And so we talk about that and what it means to be an urbanism editor and how one writes about the quote city and all that falls under that. We also talk about the difference between criticism and journalism and activism and who she views as her audience or who she's writing for and the role of the critic in uh, a city landscape like this. We talk about how she writes about policy and government through the lens of design and why we need more women writing and speaking about cities. I just had so much fun with this one and just really, really love talking to Alyssa. And I think that you're going to enjoy this one too. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional content and episode previews. Memberships really help keep the podcast going. I just really appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Alyssa Walker. to be a writer I mean I think in my heart I wanted to be a writer yeah yeah (laughs) but um I you know you it's a funny thing when you you wonder you know now that I have two kids like how they know what what um their parents do and like what they want to be when they grow up. And like my daughter came with me to take your kids to work day last week. And I asked her what I did. And she said, I type letters all day and I, and I go to an office to send emails. And I was like, well, that's pretty much. I love that actually. Life of a writer. Yeah. Type letters and go to an office to send email. But, um, I didn't really, I guess I, I did care a lot about telling stories and I think Mm. that I wish, um, I mean, I think I was always very encouraged in my creative writing with my my teachers, but I wish someone had kind of said, oh, you could, you know, be a journalist and mm-hmm. be someone who created these stories that would have value uh, to educate the public or, you know, be an advocate for some something. And I, I always thought of stories and writing as being, you know, fantasy or just being, you know, this nonfiction, uh, reading this fictional world, not, right. not nonfiction. So um, what I actually did with my writing skills was I majored in advertising. Oh, <laughs> which I didn't, okay. seems like, yeah. I did <laughs> not know that. Actually, yeah, so I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder and went to went into the advertising program there, which actually was part of the journalism school. They've reconfigured it now to be part of this like new media mm, um, mm-hmm, department, yeah. which is actually very smart on their part. Uh, but what I, you know, where I was, was taking writing classi- classes um, and taking some reporting classes, but mostly these like creative, of, you know, advertising type of classes. So wanted to be an advertising copywriter. Went to a school called the Portfolio Center in Atlanta, which I think is now part of like the Miami ad school um, world. And, um, you know, got 
a great education about how to use use words to manipulate people, not educate people, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, and re- but really love the creative part of it. But that's also where my interest in design okay. and all you know, all my love for graphic design and illustration and animation that was all from just being exposed to these incredible uh, people who I was you know students alongside with my teachers and also all the people they had to come speak and advise at the right. school. So. You know, I got this like really amazing design education on top of my yeah. writing education. So it was it was a very natural thing to once I got out into the world and realized that advertising really wasn't for me, um, <laughs> that I would want to write yeah. about um, the people making this work, you know, the creatives that I had admired. So you started answering two of my other questions. Oh, good. Yeah. Other questions. Because um, journalist, that's what happens. Yeah. Because yeah, well, so so I'm I'm going to ask you these two questions kind of together because uh, you started talking about both of them because I'm always really interested in, uh, or or I'm kind of fascinated by people who write about design or design related topics, um, whether they had any interest in ever being a designer or kind of the where that interest came from or how how you approach that. Uh, coming from someone who wanted to be a writer. And so so that's the first question is, did you ever have any interest in being a a, a designer? Or when you were studying advertising, did you have any interest in that? And then the, the second question, which may or may not be related, is what was that, how'd that intersection happen where you realized that uh, writing about this subject was actually where your kind of passion was? I think it was very easy. I uh, married a designer, married oh, a graphic okay. designer. Okay. So <laughs> great. So that was all the, all of those um, ambitions were I can live them out through him now, which is great. Um, so I met him. I met my husband, Keith Sharroth, when uh, I, you know, right when I pretty much within a year and he had moved there from New York and worked at MTV and uh, went to work at Ogilvy when it was part of uh, big, the big other design uh, consultancy. So um, he was kind of living out the fantasy design life that like Mm. I always, you know, was (laughs) maybe the agency world that I chose not to be a part of. So I got to see all the highs and lows of, you know, that side of the design world. But I do think it was great because, um, I, I I learned a lot. He was also served as part of my education. You know, he's right. been like someone who's taught me about who's doing great work and and stories to to report on, and you know who's doing the stuff that matters. So um, he's definitely my collaborator in life in many ways. Yeah. Um, and I I will say that I there's parts of me um, that I I think a lot of the things that I maybe write about or the ways that I try to communicate or do things are kind of more like design solutions in a way. So Mm. even if I'm just using words to kind of work my way through it, I'm often proposing my ideas or maybe projecting my ideas (laughs) onto the world. So um, maybe I, maybe that, you know, advertising and design education, you know, really came in handy after all. I want to come back to that because that, that relates to something that I, I was very curious to talk to you about, but I want to kind of just finish this thread for a second. So when you started, when when you kind of realized that advertising wasn't the thing and that it maybe was more journalism or kind of writing about these subjects, like what were the subjects you were writing about when you just kind of started doing this? Or what was your kind of way into writing about, you know, quote unquote design? Yeah, I think, you know, it was 
there was two things, you know, this is way back. So take yourself back to like 2002, right? 2001, 2002. So 2001, obviously a lot of bad things happened Mm -hmm. in our country. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the, uh, you know, bad things that had already started to happen, you know, in the design and advertising world, the dot-com bubble was bursting. All my friends were like getting flown to San Francisco and then getting laid off like a month later. It was just a really big mess. So a lot of people I knew that went into work at these places um, had like moved to a city and lost their jobs or, you know, had just were were like the last person hired before, you know, no one else was going to be hired. Then they lost their client. You know, there was just like really bad things that were going on. Um, so I think for me, it was, uh, I, I was interested in, uh, reporting on writing stories about people who were almost going through that kind of thing. Cause I was hearing a lot of stories like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you interesting. Were some, you were hearing some success stories and you were hearing some people doing great work and like how people were adjusting to this new age of, mm-hmm. Oh, we're not doing print campaigns. We're doing like, you know, internet campaigns, which was just radical. You know, people didn't really know what we were supposed to do except make like banner ads. <laughs> I was really interested in how agencies were adjusting to this new reality. And, um, what I saw, especially when I moved to LA, cause I just, really just moved to LA just to have a great place to live because I felt like San Francisco was kind of a mess at the time and New York was also a difficult place to live at the time. So I moved to my third choice, which ended up being the place I stayed for 17 years. And, uh, (laughs) and in LA, there was this really just resilient, um, Mm. very, uh, you know, flexible, super creative, um, you lifestyle, you know, that you could kind of merge different, um, interests into one thing you didn't have to have maybe a full-time job you could dabble in a little bit of other stuff so you had people who were like artists but also had a day job at an ad agency right. and also like painted murals or something <laughs> right. in their neighborhood yeah. on the weekend or something right so yeah. um for money too you know so you had these people kind of putting together these livings and i think that that's really reflected in a lot of the work that was being done at the time there was all this amazing animation um work all this amazing illustration work there were ad agencies starting here that were really like bending the rules when it you know, as far as like content and how to reach audiences. So you saw this and somebody who was not from here would be like, oh, it's because of the entertainment industry or something like that. But I don't, I don't know if it really had that much to do with it. I guess maybe some of the commercials made here at the time um, (laughs) might have been influenced with like you having great directors or production people around. But I really do think it was just because at the time it was a relatively affordable place to live that offered you um, some creative freedom in what you chose to do. So for me, it was just reporting on cool people I met who, you know, lived in these awesome little studios, uh, probably are too expensive for anyone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, I, I, I love that a lot. And I, I don't mean to now just kind of gloss over. I don't mean to just kind of s- talk about your, your early career and then <laughs> jump to what you're doing now. But something that, that has fascinated me about you you and your writing specifically is kind of the evolution of your interests or subject matter. You you know, I mean, you've written for Design Observer and you worked at Gizmodo for a while and Dwell and all of these places. And for a long time, I kind of just in my head had categorized you as an architecture critic. And I don't think that's a fair... I'm not sure if that was ever kind of a fair uh, (laughs) uh, description of what you do. And now it curbed your title as the urbanism editor 
That's right. Yep. And, and so I'm, I'm curious kind of about that evolution. Was that a kind of conscious change? Are you kind of following your interest? Because there's also like a scaling that's happening here, talking about kind yeah, of right, small like 2D, design. 3D, 4D. <laughs> right, yeah, right. right. Um, how, <laughs> yeah. do, how does that happen? Or, or how, how do you think about that evolution? Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. It's it's following my interests. And it's also what I'm learning about the world around me. You know, it's all still about design. It's all mm -hmm. still about problem solving. It's all still about people using new ideas to solve a problem or make a difference or, you know, it's it's all the same thing. But I think you're exactly right. I've, I've just followed my interests through uh, you, you kind of like turn a corner and you're like, oh, there's something my eye, my eyes get opened to something through reporting a story. I turn a corner and I'm like, wow, this is right in front of me. I should write about that. And mm -hmm. then I meet someone else who's doing something really cool. And, um, you know, I'm like, oh, well, I could also write about architecture. I could also write about transportation. I could also write about, you know, smart cities or whatever. So um, it, it was a very natural progression. I will also say that the, the two maybe things that aren't that different um, from, you know, this whole journey is one, just living in Los Angeles, Los Angeles started to go through these very dramatic changes. Right. And you did see these designers um, kind of working out in public all of a sudden, right? So they mm -hmm. were applying what they were doing to help the city or, you know, to beautify something in their neighborhood or to solve a problem that was, you know, kind of bigger than their own studio. So that was just, you know, tracking the projects of these great people I had already been writing about as they took their work in public. And the other thing that I think is this like design for good idea, which I've always been right. yeah. you know, tracking and, and writing about. And, and you know, we, we, we kind of started out with this like humanitarian design, but then we realized that the biggest problems to solve were probably, you know, on our own block or in our own cities. And it wasn't like we, that we had to travel to these other countries to, you know, bring them laptops or design right. a community center. A lot of people realized that they needed to help. Uh, people in their own neighborhoods and their own cities and their own states. So um, I, again, like I, you know, I, I, I do agree that the, maybe the scale is a really good way to define it. Like I'm now looking at the big picture, you know, right. really, really big picture things. Um, but it's still at, it, at its heart is just people who are trying to help people and yeah. solve problems that we all face. Is the approach, you know, is writing about, the the city that I'm I'm putting that in quotes. I know it's a, uh, such a weird thing. People are like, you write about cities, like what is that? Is that just everything? Like what? Like what cities? You know? Yeah. Cities? Well, that's that's kind of what that's kind of what my question was going to be is is that is it even fair to kind of like like what does what? <laughs> yeah, it's like do you do you like a line around an area? You're like, well, I'm not going to write about that. It's too suburban. I will never, you know, cover that. Yeah, right. Like that's kind of that's kind of what I'm asking. Is like, what defines a city? Or and then yeah. how far down that scale can you go? Like, can you talk about a specific? Right. You know, right. even though we're talking about it at this big scale, you could talk about it. You could write about a specific block or a specific building. Uh, and that yeah. still kind of counts, right? Totally. I think well, the, the title was actually invented for me, uh, created for me, invented. When I went to work at Gizmodo, Jeff okay. Mayna, who is yeah. uh, another amazing urbanism writer, um, when he was the editor of Gizmodo, he brought me on there. And, okay. I didn't realize uh, like you, I, you overlapped. I because I talked to him also for the podcast. Oh, I, that's I amazing. Yes. Work. Oh, I, I did see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he um, 
he was the one who brought me I, I basically oh, okay. it was my first real writing job I never I just freelance so I was got my first job <laughs> when I was <laughs> right. like yeah. you know, 36 yeah. um so he brought me on he created the title and the idea was that it was kind of like within Gizmodo's universe mm-hmm. um you know we had like a tech editor you know design editor we all had all these different things and, and mine was specifically to, to focus on the challenges of cities because at the time you have to think about like you know, even a few years ago, there, it was still like kind of news that people didn't want to live in cities and people were moving back into them, right? right? There was right. like a flight that, that you know, occurred, you know, in the last few decades. And yeah. um, a lot of these cities have been vacated. And for all these various reasons, people started to move back in, which has now created a new, a new set of problems for mm-hmm. cities to face. It's not the old problems. It's a new set of problems. So that was really my job was to kind of track some of these um, design solutions, innovations, projects, whatever that we were kind of facing the new, the new urban dwelling populations mm-hmm. that were swelling in a lot of these cities. So when I came over to Curbed, it, it was also a really good fit because you know Curbed is is really about what's happening on your street, what's happening on your block. You know, how's your city changing? How can you uh, advocate for good changes? Um, really, just making. I, I always say. Curbed is about making you a better citizen. Mm, and so I here like at Curb too, we have an architecture critic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then we have me being not really an urbanism critic, but, you know, an urbanism editor. And I focus on the parts of Curbed. You know, Curbed is love where you live. So I'm the parts that are like on the edge of your property line. So like how policy affects you, how transportation affects you, how, you know, all these right, different right. things don't exactly have to do with your house or real estate or you know, a beautiful, gorgeous building. Um, how, how these things affect you. And then I work with the city editors as well to, especially now in our new age of uh, a new administration in the White House, there's a lot more challenges to the frameworks that cities have set up over the last few years. And a lot of the initiatives that they've undertaken um, are not being right. uh, supported by the government when it comes to things like climate change and transportation and uh, you know making of affordable living for your right. you know, right. residents. So um, there's a lot more to write about now, and which is kind of horrible. But at the same time, we're we're I'm really proud of everything we've done at Curb over the last uh, year, whatever it's been, um, to to help people be advocates for things that we know work um, in our cities. And and what I what I like about that is that you are writing not just about not just about design in the traditional sense, but that you are talking about infrastructure and policy and government and kind of all of these, how all of these things actually affect the design of the city instead of just talking about the design of the city. You know, you know what I mean? Totally. And that's, I mean, that's kind of like the, the part of it that is underexplored, under criticized yeah. in a way, you know, we, we all rush to write about the new museum that opens right, right. in downtown or something, but nobody is writing about this except recently. I feel like now everybody's getting on the urbanism train, right? So, but yeah. you know, we didn't write about policy that was, you know, the zoning policy or for example, that mm-hmm. is creating the rules by which we are not able to build enough affordable housing to house the people in our cities. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of invisible design that's becoming visible all of a sudden. And there's a lot of people who are trying to maybe uh, use, who have been trying to use that invisible design to, uh, you know, 
create bad outcomes in certain right. cities. And we can, by making it visible, we can empower people to make changes. To me, that's the kind of design criticism that I want more of and the kind that I like to read the most where it's not just let's talk about the design of this poster or the design of this new building, but how it affects everything around it or is influenced by everything around it and kind of putting it into this larger context. And I think the people who write about cities, obviously yourself included, kind of get that. And I wonder if that type of writing and kind of looking into the the policy and everything around it, do you think that could trickle down to these smaller scales like was this new for you when you started writing about cities and that like if you were to write about a building again would that would you see a place for that to filter in yeah i mean it always it always connects right even if you're writing about any form of design it always connects to something bigger culturally or economically or you know there's always something and i i feel like you know i have written about objects and um you know uh, I mean, I can't, I have written out typefaces even, yeah. you know, there's been like a, a lot of things that have, especially certain things that have been created just for screens, you know, apps are a good example of how right. graphic design has evolved to, um, solve problems, empower people, give people tools. I, I talk about things like, you know, just a transit planning app is like the most wonderful example mm-hmm. of design, um, mm-hmm. in our contemporary world, because it allows you to make an informed decision about how around and can show you that maybe, you know, driving and parking isn't the best way to get somewhere and that you should consider walking, biking, or taking this bus is coming in five minutes, walk to the station and you've got it, you know? So in a way, I think it's, it's not very different. Um, and, and in aesthetics do matter for those kinds of things, you know, it is a user interface, you know, and the way that you experience it, which is important, but it's also, you know, I definitely pick, uh, certain apps and, and certain, uh, things to use as tools based on how they look and how they perform, you know, in (laughs) my hand on my phone. And then I think also taking the, the little things like graphic design that people don't think about every day, but the way that you interact in your city when it comes to like wayfinding and it Mm -hmm. comes to, um, uh, even like murals or or public art or things that you are, are seeing on your way to work, things like that. I mean, those are really, really big, and important parts of cities, even if they might seem that they're, you know, just small uh, printed pieces that are, you know, mm-hmm. found in the landscape. You mentioned earlier when when you were kind of talking about, about what you do, that, that you're the urbanism editor, and you, you specifically said you're not the urbanism critic. And I'm curious if yeah. there's a, uh, like, w- what's that line? Or is there a difference there between for you between criticism and journalism and, you know, reporting? How do you kind of see that? Or how do you articulate kind of your point of view on, on yeah. what you write I mean, about? Yeah, there's been a lot of conversation about that recently. I, I interviewed um, Allison Arieff, who was yeah, the... Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, one of the founding editors of Dwell, who ha- I think has had a similar path, just kind of broadening what she yeah. writes about and now writes a lot about cities as well. And we did kind of talk about the role of a critic um, at this scale. You know, it is, we, you know, I'll give like the Apple building, for example, <laughs> the new Apple headquarters, Apple yeah. Park. You know, we all 
Well, we haven't been allowed inside to write about it um, very uh, calculatedly by right. Apple and their PR team. If Apple's listening. I'd love to come visit. <laughs> but we all were able to, it, it didn't really matter. The design of the building didn't really matter as much this time. It was this context in which it had been dropped into the city where they had forced mm. it to the, the campus, the company to build you know, tens, you know, 14,000 or whatever parking spaces. I don't remember how much right, um, right, right. for its employees and, you know, basically built a parking structure that was bigger than the office space that they had built for the actual spaceship, as you call it, building. So that is, I don't know what, you know, if that's being an urbanism critic, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that's if I'm like criticizing yeah. the city for, exa- for that example. But, you know, we were talking about how we have to explain these decisions to the people who live in Cupertino, the people who live in California, other companies, other companies that might be trying to move to cities. You know, for example, like Amazon is looking for these, their new headquarters. Right, like, how right. is that going to impact these cities that are in this like American Idol style, like, um, you know, showdown to right, get these. Right campuses and we need to be able to illustrate the impacts and again like policy their parking minimums that required all this parking to be built at great waste mm-hmm. and expense you know to them and so i think it, it's the are the field of architecture criticism for example is looking at the building and the aesthetics and how it serves the users perhaps and the materials and and choices that were made and if that space is successful for who should use it, I suppose. But for me, I'm the advocate of the person who doesn't use it, who lives on the other side of the wall who um, you know has had my transit access blocked perhaps by the fact that there's this monolithic building in my backyard um, right. and the fact that the that there's not enough housing being built in the city for its employees to live there so now they're all going to either be shuttled down these private shuttles they're going to be need to try to make better connections to Caltrain they're going to maybe start driving themselves if there's free parking available at the campus so it's these impacts and how it impacts um, the city as a whole that I'm interested in now not just how it looks although that's also cool there's a lot of cool stuff going on there but I want to be an advocate for the users of the city and that's where I come into play too, I don't really have a background in architecture, or really urbanism or anything, you know, like that. Yeah. Or even design, I guess. I'm just, uh, I'm just hanging out here, <laughs> being appreciative. Um, but I, you know, I want to be, I want to be an advocate for other people to help explain to them what's happening. That's actually really interesting because something else that I was, I wanted to ask you about was who you think, who you think about when you think about your audience or your reader, and and who not just who you're writing for but kind of your your place as a a writer or you know editor or critic or kind of whatever you know that position you want to call yourself how you fit into the the user or the um I don't I don't know the 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 dweller of the city yeah. or even like <laughs> the architects and the planners and the government like how yeah. where where do you fit into that constellation of people well, it's I mean it's, it's funny too. I also interviewed Francis Anderton, who has a great oh, yeah. design show called KCRW, KCRW called DNA Design and Architecture, and yeah. you know she was like made this great point that we're basically the translators for the architects because right. nobody understands what they're ever talking about. And I would say the same about um, 
you know, policy people working in government, they speak in acronyms and talk about <laughs> certain things and yeah. nobody knows what they're talking about. So my role is to go and learn enough that I can, you know, pass along what these, all these groups are saying. <laughs> and so you just as a regular person can understand. But I also think the responsibility, um, especially now as someone who's writing about cities, and I, I tried to get into this a little bit with an essay I wrote um, last year about how men have been so... I want to say this very tactfully. Men <laughs> seem to like shout their ideas very loudly online, um, right, in right, right, social right. media, yep. and other things about how cities should be fixed. And the, most of all of the conversation about how cities need to change, I feel like, has been about men talking about how other men screwed up the cities and they have their ideas to fix it or something like that. <laughs> right, right. So right, yeah. um, we need to get more voices into the conversation and to listen to each other. And so part of what I am hoping to do and write about and, um, and bring to light, I guess, is that it's been historically like one very small group of society that's been making all of these decisions. How do we get everybody at the table? How do we listen to what's working, what people are worried about, what people are afraid of, what parts of the city can't they use right. for various reasons? And how to get those voices to, you know, be, be shared with people who are, are the decision makers. So in a way, I'm also trying to push these voices up from, you know, the cities themselves. So people yeah. who are in these positions of authority will listen. Yeah, it's interesting because when you said translator, that immediately clicked for me and made a lot of sense. But it also isn't fully, it isn't everything, you know, because cause you aren't just kind of taking what policymakers or urban planners and, and explaining it, you're also kind of, you do have a point of view on it. And especially something like cars and transportation is something, you know, you've written so much about. How do you, this is a weird question, but how, how do you kind of find that balance between a activism and journalism? Or is that even uh, a difference? That's a great, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I'm very lucky now that um, I'm in a place like Herb and even at Gizmodo where I had editors that yeah. really encouraged those very opinionated pieces. And there were some stories that I wrote where I was like, oh, I, you know, I can't go this far. I can't say this. And they're like, no, if that's what you believe, you have to make the case for it and you have to do it. And mm -hmm. those pieces do very well sometimes because people, you kind of surface these uh anger, you know, angry feelings <laughs> about things or, you know, I have a very particular stance on cars, you're right, things like that, you know, yeah. they're very easy to, you know, just get a lot of people angry. But a lot of people also agree that, you know, they, they, uh, they agree with me or they agree with my ideas. Um, but then <laughs> yeah. there, there are times where it's more appropriate to just report a story, you know, I go back and forth, we mark uncurbed my pieces that are opinion as opinion. Um, oh, interesting. So you do kind of have to wear both hats you have to you know you there's sometimes i'm just reporting the story i'm just reporting news i'm just getting it out there you know so people can mm -hmm. um make their own decisions about it and then sometimes i'm taking a stand and saying we should absolutely be doing this or this and um i'm almost always right sometimes I'm <laughs> is it easy for you to to, <laughs> to like turn that off though you know, you know, when you're just hard. reporting. Yeah, I guess you're right. Like, sometimes I'll be like, Oh, I really wish I could say this is stupid. But um, yeah. you just have to it just has to be w with what's appropriate. I think with, you know, a lot of stories, a lot of times I'm just reporting the news. And it's almost right. like you have to report on the news first. And then later, you can put it right. in context that's and create point. an opinion about it. And it's funny, because that's how the, the first like architecture critics, um, 
they didn't have anybody like covering architecture at their papers, for example. So for example, like Ada Louise Huxtable, when she started out and was like this amazing, one of the first female critics and was one of the best architectures we ever had. Yeah, 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 she yeah. was the one who was writing the news story. Oh, this building was built, blah, blah, blah. This is the architect. And then like three days later, she'd review it in the same paper right, yeah. because you have to have that context too to, for that. your readers. <laughs> I love that. I'm kind of curious what the the topics or the issues in and around design that you think designers or or even you know architects you know you you can kind of play with that scale however you want what are the issues that are kind of pressing design right now that you you would like to see more either more kind of designers talking about or design writers writing about what are those subjects that are important right now and then I'm, I'm gonna I have, I have a second part of the question just because we were talking about you kind of shifting scales are there other parts of the scale that you're interested in now that you haven't written about those are two separate oh, questions oh wow but... those are good yeah um well I think they're kind of tied together in a way okay. right so um the going back to what I was saying earlier about this idea of inclusivity and accessibility and making sure that yeah. your work and your solutions are um, understandable and embraceable by the widest swath of the, the population possible mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. going out and talking to people who will someday or maybe who won't who you know users and, and pe people who are not able to use your products and your ideas and your um, yeah. creations and figuring out why um, and I think a lot of designers are getting really good at that I've, I've seen so many great examples but then you still sometimes just really especially in the urban uh, realm you start to see some really tone deaf um, you know uh, and I, even I'm just saying that I'm like that's not a term I should even say because people who are deaf probably don't appreciate people mm, maybe using yeah, the yeah. word uh, deaf you know right now I'm, even now I'm right. you know, realizing these are not good terms but you start to realize how these solutions are not reaching everybody and they're not usable by right, everybody. Right. They're not raised by everybody. So um, those are the kind of things that I would just encourage every designer to get out of your bubble. It's quite often a bubble. Uh, take it onto the sidewalk, or for example, is what I always tell people, like go talk to people, go and engage with people. And if you're also asking about how that translates to, you know, looking at certain design on a greater scale, I guess the transportation problem mm -hmm. of this country that the country is facing is kind of the next big it's like beyond urbanism in a way because it's about this like idea of geometry and how right. we can't actually fit everybody in our cities right now <laughs> and how do we move them between the cities right in, in a faster yeah. environmentally sustainable and economical way so it's almost like the yeah, the 4D, whatever, 5D, whatever, is moving <laughs> right. people around and figuring out the spatial um, solution. And for me, that comes down to, you know, the, how we are redesigning our streets and how right. we're changing the way that we are, uh, the vehicles that we're, we're using. And, um, and it, even, I'm going to speak at this sustainable aviation summit you know in a few weeks oh, in may and that to me is like you know it's like flying cars although i think we're not supposed to say that um <laughs> you know, this, this idea that we're going to be using the air in a different way and how that connects to solutions of high-speed rail or hyperloop or all these right, different other right. ideas um and that's kind of what we're going to have to figure out quickly because once again these 
designers, a lot of, of them yeah. are designers, are creating these new ways to get around. And it's up to cities and users and environmentalists to say, hey, we need to do this in the right way. So it's always that kind of pushback. Yeah. Um, and, and what my role will be in that next chapter, I don't even know because I know absolutely nothing about this field right. that I'm going to learn. Right, right, right. <laughs> Just like I've learned about everything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, this is a little bit off topic, but, you know, just thinking about cars, like it's always just funny to me, um, you know, and thinking about kind of the future of transportation, that there's all this discussion around self-driving cars, but it's really, it's the same thing. You know, it's still just everyone in their own the way this is being pitched to us is everyone's just in their own car. Can you tell people that? Can you tell some people that? If everybody told like five people that, right. I think we'd be like in a lot better. <laughs> yeah, it just, it, it like boggles my mind. I don't understand. I, I just don't understand it. Um, that's a whole other, a whole other conversation. Um, and that's one of the things that just people, we get so distracted by awesome ideas right, and right, and we get right. so, and that's, again, like designers have a really big role to play in this. It's not just, totally. um, you know, what they're actually designing, but a lot, of, a lot of designers are creating the collateral for this kind of stuff, right? So right, right. Um, putting these ideas out there, it's like, let's let's be realistic and let's educate people and let's, you know, let's get people excited and the future is awesome. And Elon Musk can send a tweet and everybody gets all <laughs> riled up, but like yeah, we really yeah. need to go back to the most basic, basic ideas about getting around and fix those first. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. I'm 100% with you on that. My, my last question is I'm curious who you mentioned some people already, but I'm curious if there are writers or critics or even books that have really shaped kind of how you think about what you do or, or have kind of influenced your own approach to all of, yeah. all of this. I mean, I, I'll point you to uh, the, the story that I wrote recently um, about the one I was referencing earlier. It's called Mansplaining the City. Oh, yeah. And in part of that, as part of doing that research, I reached out to a lot of urbanists, female urbanists who I really had admired, who, mm -hmm. you know, had had written great books or had done a lot of great thinking on the topics. And of course, everyone has to say Jane Jacobs. But right. my argument was that, you know, by everybody saying, oh, well, Jane Jacobs kind of invented this and it's a oh, it's a yeah. women's field, almost like urbanism and walkable neighborhoods and everything. Um, it kind of gave them permission to not talk about more women who are doing yeah, these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have an amazing book list um, in that article, oh, um, which you can share. It's all stories. Uh, it's all books and, and other things from, from by women about cities. And just some of the really smart thinking right now is being done by women who are have come up through you know, have come to policy in a different way and come to like urban policy and urban planning in a different way. And a lot of these people are sociologists or they're urban anthropologists or they're, you know, they're just, yeah. they're scientists and they're really approaching the way we build and maintain and, and fix cities um, in a totally different way. So I will just give a plug for maybe linking to that article I, and seeing some that. of the great, um, the great, you know, load up your Kindle or your, your book list with some of these really smart uh, stories and, and books by these women. That's, that's perfect. And just kind of related to that, one of my favorite recent pieces of yours was your, your piece about uh, the new LA Times architecture critic should be a woman. And you kind of talked about all of these people. And I was really embarrassed that I only knew like half of them. 
exactly. And, yeah. And so this you is like my world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think you're right. I mean, looking at you look at the critics that are at these newspaper and, and a lot. I will say a lot of the critics have done a really amazing job branching out beyond architecture. Chris yeah. was a good example, um, yeah. but a lot of the other critics have done the same thing of writing more about urbanism and transportation, but still like only a handful of them are women. And that's, yeah. you know, these are white men who have had these jobs for a decade or more. They're amazing. A lot of them are great. They're my friends. They're doing a great job, but like it's time for new voices to be yeah. at these newspapers, especially when, you know, the local media is such a, you know, precarious in such a precarious situation right now. I agree 100%. And I, I, you know, like I said, before we started recording, I would include you on that list of, of kind of these great, um, great writers and the way you kind of approach this from a, uh, you know, somewhat non traditional background. Um, and I just love the work that you do. I try to read as much as every time I see a new piece from from you, I try to try to make sure that it's added to my queue. And this was this was such a great conversation. I love this so much. Thank you so much uh, for for talking to me and being on the podcast. Thank you. You asked such great questions. This episode was recorded on May 1st, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.